Let me invite you to turn to the 42nd chapter of Genesis, Genesis 42. We'll continue reading and studying the saga of Joseph. And yet the funny thing is, this chapter isn't really about Joseph in one way. It's really about Jacob. You may have forgotten this because I haven't mentioned it. But this whole section of Joseph is actually entitled the generations of Jacob. We had the generations of Esau, and then we have the generations of Jacob. Chapter 37, verse 2. And so really Joseph is a story of Jacob and his, his brood, his offspring, his kids, his family. We come now to Joseph, his brothers, and Jacob. We'll begin in verse 1. We'll read the whole of the chapter. Let's come now and hear what may be a familiar story to you. I learned it when I was growing up, reading my kid's Bible. But though it's familiar, I think we need to look and see what, uh, what God has for us this morning. Let's come and trust that despite appearances, despite what you may be feeling, despite what you may have planned for the holiday week, this is actually the most important thing you'll do this week to receive God's word. Let's come and believe that as we read these words written by Moses and by the hand of the Lord. We're told that when Jacob learned there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? He said, look, I've heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor of the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And he said to them, you're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And look, the youngest is this day with our father. And one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it says, I said to you, you're spies. By this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you. And let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else. By the life of Pharaoh, surely your spies. He put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live. For I fear God, if you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. Let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? 
but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bag, the grain, to replace each man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money's been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man, the Lord of this land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we're honest men. We've never been spies. We're 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. And the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you're not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, look, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons. If I do not bring him back to you, put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you're to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. That's in the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask him to bless the hearing, the believing, the loving, and the preaching of his word. Please bow with me. Father, you offer to us this word. You give to us this token of who you are, this sign of your greatness, and this sign of our hearts. We pray you would unveil the eyes of our hearts, that we would see you and see Jesus this hour. We pray, trusting that you will do what you have promised. As your word is proclaimed, you will touch our hearts and change our minds. We ask this in the power of your spirit, in the name of Christ. Amen. Jacob cries out, in verse 36, this is the key, really, that we're going to look at. He says, everything is against me. All this has come against me. Everything is against me. You felt like that, perhaps. Everything in your life against you. Everything seems to be a mess. Nothing's going right. Maybe this Christmas season, it's not everything. It's just most things. You're feeling like Eeyore. A little bit out of place. A little bit sore. A little bit depressed. Pessimistic, gloomy. It's a way of living that really robs anything you do of joy. You know, you're trying to do what you used to like, and it's not bringing you any, any happiness. Uh, your Christian witness is spoiled. You ignore the mercy of God. Something that, that's not good enough. All that God gives you, you don't think about it. You're saying, but I'm in, the, I'm in this, this pit. I'm in this problem. Everything 
all things have come against me. Everything's against you. Now, look, if you're not actually a Christian today, everything is against you. If you're not looking to Jesus Christ, everything is actually against you. Not just the bad things, but the good things, the things you love, the, the candy canes of life, the Christmas presents, all the things you appreciate, all the gifts you have, the food, the, the fact you have a mom and a dad, the fact you have siblings, the fact you have a home, the fact you have uh, uh, warm air, you have heated air and not you're not freezing to death. All of that is part of God's record that says you're getting so many gifts and you're not grateful. You're not thanking God. You're bored of Jesus, perhaps. You say, look, I've been to churches. I've tried that Jesus thing. It's not working for me. And if you're ever bored of Jesus, you're actually in a really bad spot. Because God and his gifts are no longer good to you, but they taste like ashes in your mouth. See, it's only when you come to Christ as your Lord that that changes. How beautiful everything becomes to you. How beautiful. So many things you thought were boring. How beautiful it becomes. If you're a Christian, God's for you. And if God's for you, Paul can say, who's against you? If God's for you, then everything can't be against you. Well, so we look at this, uh, this guy, Jacob, this man. He's been the main character, and then he kind of went off the playing field, and now he's back on. He's been subbed back in. It's his life for at least this chapter we're going to look at. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look first at what Jacob saw, second at what we see now, and third at what God sees. Jacob, us, and God. Very simple outline. First, what does Jacob see? What did he see back then? Well, verse 1. Famine. Famine. Verse 5. The famine in the land. Verse 1. Jacob says, there's grain somewhere. There's grain for sale in Egypt. He, he sees a severe famine. He sees the ghastly reality. You recall from last week. I'll talk a little bit about the kids we see in the commercials. We don't, we don't watch commercials maybe in these days. They don't show them as much. But occasionally you still see them. The kids and the eyes are so big and the, the tummies are so inward. They're so emaciated. They're starving. Famine. This shows us here that the, the chosen family, the Christians, were not exempt from famine. Verse 2, he says to his sons, I've heard there's grain. Go down to Egypt. Get me some food. On the verge of starvation. And yet, you look at the very end of the chapter. You look at the beginning of the chapter. You see that, see that Jacob has a problem of food. The end of the chapter, what does he have a problem with? He has a problem he's had for 20 years. He's still grieving his dead son. He thinks he's dead. The loss of his favorite son, Joseph. Verse 38, his brother's dead. Benjamin's brother, Joseph's dead. He's still grieving. Sorrow has been eating at him for two decades. So the beginning, there's famine. At the end, he's still in grief. And in the middle, what's the issue for Jacob? It's his kids, his family. They're dysfunctional. Part of that is his own fault. I mean, look at what he says in verse 38. He says it to Reuben, but he says it to all his sons. He says, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. He is the only one left. He's saying, I only have two sons, one of them's dead, and there's Benjamin, and he's saying this to ten of his sons. This is Jacob. He didn't love his ten sons. He didn't treat him as sons. He snarls at them in verse 1. What are you all doing? Why are you all looking at each other? 
Go do something. He doesn't love them. He didn't care. Right? Verse 4. He does not send Benjamin with them on the first trip because he's afraid that harm might happen to him. Benjamin might get killed or worse. He doesn't care about the other 10 kids, sons, guys. He doesn't care if they get killed. They're not really his sons, he thinks. He doesn't treat them like that. Even though they are. And he knows how brutal they are. He knows that though they say they're honest men, they're not actually honest men. They're, they're brutal guys. They're violent men. One commentator says, under their father's eyes, the brothers' crimes might be covered up, but not their character. He knows what kind of guys these are. He treats them as not part of his family. I mean, this is the church. This is the covenant family of God right here. So this is a situation for Jacob. He doesn't have food. He's grieving. He doesn't trust his sons. He doesn't treat them as sons. And one of them is now actually in prison in Egypt by the end of the story. Simeon is in prison. It's funny because when his sons come back, you see in, in verse 32 and 33, they kind of don't tell the real story. They kind of leave out a couple of key parts like, oh, Simeon's in prison. They leave out that crucial part. They make it sound like he's in a hotel. He's in like the penthouse. He's in the Ritz. He's not in the Ritz. He's in the dungeon. And so Jacob, by the end of the story, verse 38, is in a pickle. Everything feels like it's against him. Now, he's not exaggerating. He's not making it up. He's not kind of uh, being Eeyore-ish to too much of a degree. These are hard circumstances. These are difficult. Discouraging. Now, isn't that helpful for you as a Christian? Because right now, we're in the happiest week of the year, Right? In these next two weeks, there, there are times you're supposed to be merry. You are commanded to be joyful and merry because the coffee cups they sell tell you to do that. Because the churches you go to tell you you have to be happy. It's a merry Christmas. You must be merry. Yeah, what if you're not merry? What if you are sad? What if it's a hard time? What if your family is dysfunctional? What if uh, you, you don't have food? Maybe you don't face that. Many of us don't face that because we're in America, perhaps. But uh, what, if, what if you have sorrow? What if it's not a merry Christmas, but a sad Christmas? Well, this shows us right here that, that that's a Christian, that's part of the Christian life. Christians can face dire, devastating tragedy, urgent material need, persistent sadness and loss and heartache, unhappy situations, crippled by uncertainty. You don't know where your meal is going to come from. Like Jacob, I mean, this is this. If you read through the story, you realize Jacob's. I mean, he's on the edge of losing it. He's on the edge of losing it. 20 years of grief he's been carrying around. But you see, what Jacob saw at the time, like what you see maybe in your day right now, wasn't the whole story. It's not the whole tale. And so second, we have to go later. We have to see what we see. We see what Jacob saw. He saw family, he saw grief, he saw sorrow, he saw uh, evil kids, and he didn't want to count his kids. But what do we see? We, we've read the rest of the story. What do we see? Well, with hindsight, we get the benefit. 2020 vision, hindsight. We can say, Jacob, no, it's not impossible. Everything is not against you. You couldn't see it, but everything's in your favor. Look at verse 2. He tells his 
sons, go down and buy grain for us that we may live and not die. That's what will happen. They will live and not die. That is actually what will happen. They will live and not die. They will get riches beyond belief. The famine that Jacob is so concerned about is actually God's way of blessing them and not a means of failure. The famine seems disastrous, but God is going to heal and save this broken family. These wicked brothers, these violent guys, they will be convicted and converted. In a few chapters, they will be willing to die for each other and care for their old father, Jacob. I mean, the closer we get to that here is Reuben saying, hey, kill your two grandkids. That'll solve your grief problems, dad. You know, if it don't work out, here are a couple of my kids. Take them. That's not going to solve anything, Reuben. Come on. But one day, the kids will be, the sons will be changed. We'll see, of course, in, in the weeks to come that Judah himself will say, no, not my sons, take me, my life, my life for his. And the guilt of the past we washed away in a flood of forgiveness. This is how it will start. That, that's why, by the way, when the brothers come to Joseph, which is the main kind of scene here, when the brothers come to Joseph, look at how Joseph treats them. We're told several times in the text, Joseph does not treat them in a sweet way a kind way, a nice way. He treats them, we are told, in a rough. This is verse 7. He sees his brothers. He recognizes his brothers. He treats them like strangers. He speaks roughly to them. Now, why does Joseph do that? Why does Joseph speak roughly to them? Is it kind of revenge? Is it kind of a, his vengeance on them? I'm going to get back at y'all for what y'all did to me. I don't think so. In fact, we know it's not that in part because of what happens in verse 24. Joseph weeps. He's sad. He's sorrowful. He could crush them like a bug. I mean, he is the Lord of the superpower. He's the prime minister. He's the vice president of the greatest power on earth. He could crush them like a bug. He could put them in pits forever. So why does he treat them roughly? He treats them roughly. Because he is concerned for their spiritual well-being. He is like a good surgeon. He is concerned for their souls. He is wise. And so he reaches into his bag of spiritual wisdom and he presses on their pressure point. He presses on their pressure point. You look at it. Look at what he does to them. It's very clever. And it's an echo. This is an echo chamber. It's an echo of what they have done to him. He sees these 10 men. He knows they're his brothers. But after 20 years, they don't recognize him. It's been 20 years. They knew him when he was 17 years old. He's a teenager. And now he's a clean-shaven Egyptian prime minister, 39 years old. He uses an interpreter. He pretends not to understand. They're Hebrew. And that's why he can't tell them who he is, because he doesn't know, have they changed? I've changed. He knows he's changed. Have they changed? Is Benjamin alive? Or has he been sold like I was? He needs answers. They haven't been tested until he begins to break them down. He begins to test them. And he, he accuses them of, the, of this one key fact. This, this is the charge he brings against them over and over again. You're a spy. You're a spy. The, the historians tell us that the Egyptians were always afraid of spies from the east. They were always afraid of invasions from the east. The two great powers, the other 
big nations of the day, you know, the Assyrians and the Hittites, they would come down from the east. And so a, a couple of hundred years earlier, one of the Pharaohs had built a kind of a fortress, a Maginot line of forts in the Sinai for defense. And so if you wanted to come from the east, from Canaan into Egypt, you had to go through customs. You had to go through immigration. You had to go through border guards. You had to go through security. And so Joseph kind of goes into a bad cop, good cop routine. He hammers home. He says, your spies, your spies, your spies, your spooks. And then he throws them all into prison for three days. And what's going on here? Why is that the charge? And why are they thrown into prison? And then release them all, but leave one behind. Well, he, he's deliberately echoing and replaying what had happened to him. This charge of spying. Remember what Joseph was? The first time we meet Joseph, he's 17 years old. And what's he doing? He's bringing a bad report of his brothers back to daddy. I'm almost positive his brothers talked about Joseph when he was that age. They said, that little sneak, that little tattletale, that little spy, he's spying on us. He's a snitch. What does he accuse them of? Spying, snitching, espionage. And what had they done to him? They had imprisoned him in a pit, though he was innocent. Now they are innocent. They are, they are honest in this one instance. He locks them up. He says, see what it's like. See how rough I am. And what have they done after that? They sold him for silver. They sell him for silver. And what does he give back to them? He gives them silver. The last time the brothers had silver in their sacks journeying back in this direction was when they had sold Joseph for silver. And so he gives them silver. It's like putting little time bombs, putting little time bombs in their life. He's planting these bombs to bring their lives into proper perspective. I'm sure for the brothers, there was a kind of an unspoken agreement. If y'all have siblings, you know, this better than I, I'm only a child, I don't know this, but I'm sure I've been told that, you know, among siblings, if something bad happens, one of the ways you deal with it is you don't talk about it. You don't mention that day. You don't mention that incident. I'm sure there was, kind of, there was an unspoken agreement among the brothers. Don't bring up Joseph. Don't mention what happened. That coat. Don't bring up the coat of many colors. And so if you look at verse 21 and verse 22, they begin to hear the time bombs ticking. The time bombs are going off. The echoes of what they have done, they, they begin to realize in truth we are guilty concerning our brother. Their consciences are awakened. And then what happens? Reuben pipes up, verse 22. He says, I told you so. I told you so. I, 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 I was right. Y'all were wrong. I told you this happened, guys. Reuben. Oh, Reuben. I mean, this, isn't this what you do? I told you to lock the front door. I told you to get the keys. You know, this is what happens in our lives. We, we, have, a, we have an argument. We have a fight. And you get in trouble. Something bad happens. And immediately, bam, the blame game. So their consciences are beginning to be pricked by Joseph. He's doing spiritual surgery. He's poking and prodding at the pressure points. And yet, it's only when they see, when they see the silver that the, the key thing begins to happen. Verse 28. They say these words, what is this that God has done to us? It's the first time that God has ever come from their lips in this whole story. The first time they mention God ever. 
That's the thing about the non-Christian, friends. God's never in her thoughts. Or if he's in the thoughts, he's at the periphery. He's on the edge. God is at the circumference, not at the core. He's in a nice little place. I mean, this is why, look, if, if, you're, if you're not a Christian, this is why you joke in the presence of Christians. This is why you laugh about Jesus. This is why you can never have a long conversation about spiritual things. You're too scared. You're a scaredy cat. We need to come to Jesus, the one whom we've offended, that he might forgive us. And slowly and surely, God is starting to creep into their thinking. In verse 35, they find the silver. And, and what happens? They're afraid. They're scared. But what kind of fear is this? That's the real question. Is it simply guilty fear? Well, we'll have to see. We don't yet know. But we know that God is using Joseph to deal with these guys. He has reminded them of the cries of their brother. Don't sell me. And Joseph is doing this. Verse 18, do this and you will live for I fear God. Joseph is so concerned. He loves his brothers so much. He wants them to live and not die. And so he has to poke. He has to prod. He has to push. See, the point, the point of all this is that you know the end of the story. You know that in a few weeks, the family's going to be together. They're going to be happy. They're going to be reunited. That They're going to be full of food and full of joy. All of these horrible things that Jacob sees, everything is against me, is actually being used by God for their good. That's the point, friends. Same is true for you in your present. Same is true in your present. Now, <clears throat> ladies, um, I'm just going to tell you right this right now. I'm not into sewing. I'm not into crocheting. I'm not into needlework. I don't even know the difference, what, what the difference is. I just know there are words that I use. And so I'm going to use them right now, and you'll tell me what's right or wrong. I'm not into any of that stuff. I'm not into the, mainly because I can't see and I always, you know, pick myself. I bleed. Um, but you know that when you do a needlework project and, and you, you look at the back of it, you turn it over, what's it look like? It's not yet done. It's a bunch of threads. It's gobbledygook. It's jumbled together. It's all sticking out. It's ugly. It's not pretty. Unfinished lines or the jumble. But someday when you get it done, what do you do? You turn it around, you look, and you say, wow, it's beautiful. It's a finished product. And you realize that the jumble, the puzzles, the, the weird lines, they were all necessary to be woven into a final and finished good, a beautiful and glorious goal. That's why God, that's how God works with you. Your life's a jumble. Your life is a bunch of threads that don't connect right now. It's hanging in the air. That's why God sends you the famine. Oh, I, I'm doubt it's a food famine, actually. It's a psychological famine, a social, emotional, financial famine. They would never have gone to Joseph if the famine wasn't there. But perhaps you're like the brothers. And you think of Jesus and God, he's really mean and harsh. He's always kind of poking and prodding. And all these Christians talk about sin. And, ugh, that's so, that's very low self-esteem. It's not healthy for you. And you say, ugh, this is, this is disgusting talk. And you have no idea that actually God's being rough with you. He's breaking you down to actually heal you. It's like the surgeon. The surgeon looks at the bone that's been set, and it's been set poorly. The bone's been set poorly, and what does the doctor have to do? He has to reset it. He says, look, I need to actually break your bone to reset it properly. So sometimes Jesus Christ has to treat you roughly. 
Do you feel God roughing you up? You have to go back to the same God who's roughing you up. You need faith to believe that it's not just meaningless cruelty. You need faith to believe that behind the threads of your life, there is a kind and gracious plan. If you could see now what you will be, you would never say like Jacob, everything's against me. If you can see now what you will be in glory, you would never say, oh, all this is, is, is dull and evil. In fact, Jacob himself, the same guy, will say later in chapter 48 that the same God hath delivered him from all harm. He comes to see the whole picture. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. Now I see in part, then I shall see and know fully as I am fully known. Do you keep, therefore, the end in mind? And that's really kind of the last point here. We see what Jacob saw. We see what we see, kind of the whole story of Jacob. But we have to see what God sees, what God plans. Finally, briefly. The only reason that your life can be a tapestry the only reason that illustration can work when I use it is the fact of a designer. The only way you can know the jumbled puzzle of your life is going to resolve into a harmonious, beautiful whole is the reality of a designer. Do you realize that the reason why Christmas can be a time of joy and merriment as a Christian, despite your unmarried, unjoyful lives, the only reason you can, have, you can say Merry Christmas it's because you have a God who works all things out according to the counsel of his will. You can be optimistic and not naively, blindly, mindlessly optimistic. You can be optimistic not, not because of chance, because you happen to live in the one uh, universe that's the right one. No, no, no. You're not a Christian. You're not optimistic because of that. You're optimistic because of the God who does what he says he will. Remember the story of Joseph? Remember the dreams he had? He had two dreams, and they both said, your brothers are going to bow down to you. And what we have here in verse 6, Joseph's brothers came to, to him and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. We read in verse 9, Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Joseph sees his brothers bowing down. He remembers his dreams. He remembers that God's plan in his suffering, in his life in the pit, in his roller coaster up and down life, it had been all overruled. But here's the question. Why doesn't Joseph, you know, he can be a little rough with him, but why doesn't he just come out and say right now, hey, hey, guys, it's me. Hey, bros, it's me. I'm Joseph. I love you. Don't worry, don't worry. Why do they do that right now? Why do we have a whole nother long chapter, another rerun, a long journey with Benjamin? Two reasons. First, he knows the difference between regretting sin and coming to God. He knows the distinction between worldly regret and godly repentance. He knows the difference between Simon Peter and Judas Iscariot. Both Simon and both Peter and Judas wept. Both Peter and Judas were sorry for what they had done, but Judas regretted his betrayal, and Peter ran to the Savior. That's the first reason. It's the reason that really makes all the difference when you are feeling guilty. But he remembers the second thing as well. He remembers that he had two dreams, and the first dream was all his brothers bowing down as sheaves of grain. 
But he remembers his second dream that said 11 stars, 11, not 10 brothers right now, 11 brothers and the sun, his daddy and the moon, his mommy, Jacob and his wives bowing down. The first dream is worked out, but only 10 brothers are bowing down. No Jacob. And so Joseph understands that God works slowly, that God works slowly in our lives. He understands that Benjamin isn't there. So Joseph begins the ball. He starts the ball rolling. I mean, it's so slow, isn't it? God is so slow by your timetable. God is so slow. 22 long years, he has been preparing Joseph through a dysfunctional family. God has long-term purposes. And that means for Christians who are always in a hurry, like you and like me, God works far too slowly for what we want. That we are far too immature to handle the speed of God. We're the rabbit and he is the tortoise. But Joseph has learned patience. He has the patience not just to come out and say, hey, God, it's me. But he has the patience to wait upon the God who works his purposes deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill. And that God who worked in Joseph's life has not changed. He is your God. He works in your life with skill that is perfect and timing that is precise. He intends all that happens to you to be a good thing. And of course, the best example of that is the cross of Christ. It is the incarnation of Christ that at the right time, he sent his son born of a woman that at the right moment, when all things seemed against Jesus, against good, against beauty, against hope, against God, Calvary occurred. And nothing on the cross seemed so against God, but was actually for God. Nothing in all history was as pro-God, as on the side of God. And therefore, when the Bible says you will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, dear Christian, that's what God will do. That's what he's doing right now. It may seem as though all things are against you, but look to the cross. Meditate on the cross. Recall how God brings life out of death, good out of evil. Press the cross against your heart, against your doubts, against your difficulties, against your darkness. That's hard. I'm not saying it's an easy thing. That's faith. That's the lesson of this chapter, that nothing in creation, not even Jacob's grief, not even famine, not even difficulty, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look to that this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we know that in trial and challenge and difficulty and sadness and sin, Lord, we need to come to you. We pray that as you uh, rough us up, you would give us that hope in your patience and who you are and your goodness. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the babe in the manger, the Lord the suffering servant on the cross, and now the Lord of glory. We pray in his name, as well as in the name of our Father and the Holy Spirit, that you would do all these things. Amen.